Welcome to the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy and, and get into the weeds of all that. My name is John Hartley. I'm your host. And today we have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Warren Coates, a monetary economist and central bank advisor. Uh, he's currently a senior fellow at uh, the John Hopkins uh, Krieger School Institute for Applied Economics. He spent a over a 30 year career at the IMF where he was involved in, in about uh, well over 20 missions uh, to various uh, central banks in various countries around the world. Welcome, Warren. Thank you very much, John. It's a great pleasure to be here. So I want to start opening uh, this up with um, what got you interested in economics to begin with? You did your uh, uh, PhD in economics at the University of Chicago. Uh, you're, uh, you studied under uh, Milton Friedman, who is your uh, your dissertation uh, advisor and the chair of your committee. Um, how, how did you first get into economics to begin with, and, and what led you to studying at Chicago? Uh, John, I'm going to take a sort of long route because I think it was an interesting path in getting there. I had always seen myself as a physicist. I wanted to be a physicist, uh, and I read that kind of material, etc. My senior year in high school, uh, I spent one year in Germany as an exchange student <clears throat> in a very small village, literally on the Iron Curtain. I, I could walk the dog from the house along the border between East and West Germany. Um, we can come back and explain what East and West Germany was for those who uh, weren't alive then or don't remember. But uh, in any event, during that year, uh, one of my classmates in the gymnasium I attended that year uh, had come with his family from across the border, a nearby village, etc. cetera. Uh, during the course of that year, we, uh, the whole exchange group, there were about 40 of us, I guess, scattered around Germany, uh, took several trips, one to Berlin, uh, and I'll, uh, come back and tell a little story about that. But uh, it gave me uh, an exposure most people don't have of what life under communism is like and had a profound effect on me. Let me tell you a quick story though about Berlin. Uh, this uh, it may shock some people that there was such a time, but was before the Berlin Wall had gone up. And the, the center of of Berlin culturally uh, and governance-wise, Berlin was the capital of Germany before World War II. Uh, the center where the opera house is and so on was in the Eastern zone. I should say quickly that at the end of World War II, the allied forces, which were the United States, France, Britain, and Russia, we were allied together against Hitler's Germany uh, divided up Germany into four sectors, an American sector, French sector, etc. Um, and quickly the, the three more friendly of the allies, Britain, France, and the United States, consolidated their sectors and the governance of it, etc. Russia did not, and hence the country, instead of having four quadrants, really, practically speaking, was divided into two the western and the eastern parts, uh, and Berlin itself, which had been the capital, 
was also divided into four quadrants, which then became two, Western and uh, East Berlin. But Berlin itself was right in the middle of, of East Germany. So it was a little bit awkward because it was isolated out there. Uh, so when we went to Berlin, uh, we went to an opera, the first opera I'd ever attended, uh, and it was in the Eastern Zone, which was, as I said, the cultural center of, of greater, greater Berlin. We were listening to Prince Igor, or watching and listening to Prince Igor, uh, Borodin's famous opera, and there's a, a dance, the Peloponnesian dances, that many Americans will recognize from an American musical, the name of which I don't remember. It was Desert Song or so, so, something like that. But you, were, it, most anybody would recognize the music from this. And when, when they began playing that and doing the dance, etc., I turned to my exchange student friend next to me and said, my God, those Russians will steal anything. Now, in case anybody doesn't get that, we stole it from them. It was a Russian piece of music, etc. But this was the state of my naivete at, uh, at 18 years old, exploring around East and West Germany. So when I returned home, uh, I went to the local junior college, still majoring in, or starting my major in, in physics and anticipating a career in, in physics. But the campus newspaper, in my view, having freshly come back from the border of East Germany, uh, was not giving a fair picture of the debates between, I think it was Nixon and Kennedy or, or something. Um, so my friends and I started our own little underground paper. Once a week we published something that we thought gave a, a more uh, conservative point of view, and I should mention, I forgot to mention, that when I returned, a friend gave me a copy of Barry Goldwater's Conscience of a Conservative. And when I read that, it was like a light bulb going off. You know, it just uh, gave a concrete expression to all of the thoughts that had been floating around in my head watching East Germany and, and communism in action so nearby during my, my year as an exchange student. So we, I spent a great deal of time, a lot of my, what would have been party time, I suppose, uh, reading and, and writing and producing this uh, weekly newspaper. After two years at the junior college, I transferred to the University of California at Berkeley, which was the premier university for physics in the world, Lawrence Radiation Laboratory, and so on. Um, for, forgive me if I jump around a little bit, but I left out um, an interesting episode that I think reflects on my interest in physics. Before going to Germany, uh, just before, I think, I got up at four o'clock in the morning and stood in my backyard and looked east in order to watch an atomic bomb explosion, a test wow. in, in the Mojave Desert. Uh, I'm, I'm at this moment that I'm speaking about in Bakersfield, California, which is where I was born and, and, and grew up. The, the sky lit up totally 
an eerie um, blue-white kind of light, not normal sort of sunlight, but completely lit up the entire sky. Something like 20 minutes later, I could hear the small boom from, from the explosion. That's how long, that's how quick speed, that's how fast light travels versus sound. A 20 minute or so difference between seeing the light and hearing, hearing the sound. So th this is, a, I mean, you know, uh, I must have been 16 at the time, a 16 year old getting up at four o'clock in the morning. You know, that's, a, that's an event by itself and, and speaks to how interested I was in, in physics. So I went off to Berkeley uh, after two years of majoring in physics at the junior college and started my junior year physics major at Berkeley and immediately came to realize that I would have to make a choice between the passions that I had for policy issues that I'd been working on with the underground newspaper that we produced and, and my passion for physics. There was not time for both. And I took the choice that I would rather stick with exploring public policies uh, and gave up physics, changed my major, uh, changed to political science, which within a week I realized was a terrible mistake. It was all about party politics and all this stuff, which I had no interest in whatsoever. I was interested in public policy. And somehow out of that, I really didn't know quite what economics was, but somehow out of that, uh, I came to realize that economics probably provided the tools and the analysis that I really needed and wanted to be able to explore uh, in a careful, systematic way the public policy issues that, that I was interested in. So I switched to economics and I was in love with it ever since. Extremely happy. It's, it's where my mind wanted to be. Later, uh, a year or two later, this, my last year at Berkeley was the free speech movement there, if, if anyone follows that kind of history, and it was a time when actually we truly believed in free speech, all the way from the Marxists to the conservatives and, and the Democrats and Republicans in between. Everybody truly believed in free speech. We all defended everybody's right to express their views uh, on subjects, whatever those views might be, etc., unlike the environment that we sometimes encounter today. Uh, in this last year, Milton Friedman's daughter, Janet, who was in the law school there, invited her father to come and, and lecture at Berkeley. And when I went to hear him and then read Capitalism and Freedom, I vowed I will die if I can't study under this man. He, he, was, he took my breath away. He was fan, fantastic, so stimulating, but so clear and, and such a friendly person and so on. So the rest of my time at Berkeley was devoted to making sure that I got into Chicago, which I did, studied under Friedman. He chaired my dissertation committee uh, and I'm, uh, whatever success and happiness in life I have, I think, comes from those decisions and having been able to work with Milton Friedman. Wow. Well, one, I, I think uh, it, it's certainly um, uh, a, a, um, 
you, you're not the only economist uh, to have been a physicist first. And I, I know uh, John Cochran uh, was uh, very interested in physics before he became an economist. Uh, very similar tools, uh, certainly, you know, partial differential equations and so forth. Uh, you know, capitalism, freedom, you know, that came out in 1962. Uh, amazing, uh, you know, the influence that, you know, it's had on, I feel like, generations of economists. And you came to uh, the University of Chicago after um, graduating from Berkeley uh, in, in 1965, and, um, and you um, uh, uh, were there doing your PhD under Milton Friedman. Um, you also had um, Robert Gordon on your committee. Um, I'm curious, what was it like at Chicago at the time? What was it like in the department? This, I think this era was really the beginning of expectations playing a role in uh, macro models, um, you know, thinking, you know, for example, going from sort of the uh, traditional Phillips curve um, to the expectations augmented Phillips curve. I'm curious, what was your experience like as a graduate student there at the time? Uh, did you find yourself um, uh, spending a lot of time in the uh, money and banking uh, seminars, which I think uh, were generally attended by uh, Friedman and Becker, or you also had, I think, the international seminars at the time, which I think had you know, Harry Johnson uh, and Bob Mondell. Uh, you also had people like Art Laffer, who I think was at the, you know, the business school at the time. Um, but I'm curious, you know, what was your experience you know, arriving there as a graduate student? Um, what was it like taking you know, price theory um, under, um, you know, I assume Friedman and, and Becker were teaching at the time? What was that experience like for you? There's really one word which is ex exciting, intellectually challenging, hard work, and always very exciting. We, we were learning things that we recognized as insightful and useful. Uh, the dialogue among the, the faculty and the students was open and vigorous and challenging. It, it was just really exciting. Amazing. In, in, in particular, like, um, did you find, um, I think one thing that I, I found really interesting, which you were telling me earlier, is that, you know, in, in price theory, um, in, and I suppose, you know, at the time, you, know, you would take, you know, effectively the same class, but with a different professor for each quarter. Uh, you know, this is, I, I find, like, very different from today, where you know, classes are very organized in terms of their topics. If you take a graduate microeconomics class in an economics PhD program, the first semester might be uh, everything from um, you know, building up uh, from um, you know, preferences to uh, utility to uh, uh, you know, building demand curves, working all the way to general equilibrium, maybe in your second uh, quarter, you know, getting into uh, topics like uh, game theory or, or mechanism design, um, you know, toward the end of that first year sequence. I feel like this is just a totally different experience. Obviously, Chicago price theory tends to sort of um, market itself as something different from traditional microeconomics or, or other graduate microeconomics classes. How would you describe, you know, your Chicago price theory experience? Well, first of all, as uh, to provide the context, the PhD program at Chicago uh, began by uh, insisting that we master the basics, the fundamentals of uh, micro and macro theory, 
what was called the core exam was the first big hurdle you had to pass. So these these micro courses and, and the money courses uh, were the major inputs into what we needed to learn for the for the core exam. And each professor brought his own flavor. You know, I mean, the, the, the core theory was the core theory. One thing about Chicago is they take it seriously. You know, it's, it's real. Uh, but each professor has, has their own slant. So all of us, I, I think basically everybody, took each of these courses twice, each time with a different professor in order to get the, the slice or the, the perspective of that particular professor to, to the core theory on which most everything else was built. So um, it was a very, very in intense first year, and it laid a fantastic foundation for, for what followed. Well, uh, what an exciting time uh, to be a monetary economist at Chicago. Uh, you know, this was around the same time that Friedman and Schwartz had published A Monetary History of the United States, sort of the, the advent of, um, of monetarism and, and thinking about uh, the role that uh, money uh, plays in, in inflation. Um, I, I feel like uh, that this was perhaps uh, just uh, uh, you know, the beginning of, uh, of that uh, uh, monetarist uh, movement. So when, after your time at, at uh, Chicago, you become an assistant professor at UVA and are, are teaching there. And then um, after five years there, you join the IMF and you have this incredible 30-year um, career spending uh, three decades um, there. You join in 1973. Uh, this is uh, right as the um, Bretton Woods system of fixed exchange rates is breaking down. This is after Nixon uh, had closed uh, the gold window. Um, I'm curious um, about what your time uh, like was there. And, and one, I want to um, start by you know getting into um, your role as um, providing you know, technical assistance to uh, to foreign central banks uh, as as part of an IMF mission. Uh, you, you did this uh, for you know over uh, twenty countries. Um, over your 30-year career, but I, I think there's a, you know a lot of listeners um, who might not be familiar with um, what this process is like of uh, the IMF, um, you know, sending uh, missions to foreign central banks um, for various reasons, um, perhaps um, because they're uh, you know countries that are rebuilding after some conflict, or or perhaps there's um, you know been some um, monumental change like you know the collapse of the USSR. I'm curious, like what um, what does that um, in, involve? Um, like, for example, you're uh, you go over with a team to a country, um, and you're um, you're working with people at that um, central bank and with a foreign government. Um, how many um, uh, how much time would you spend there on a given trip? Um, and and so I, I presume you know you'd be flying over there either maybe on uh, on commercial flight or maybe a government flight. Um, I'm curious, you know, maybe starting with um, uh, the, the USSR, um, obviously, you know, th this was uh, a, a very um, interesting time. Um, you know, we have a lot of um, post-USSR 
uh, countries in Eastern Europe, which are transitioning to becoming market economies um, that are thinking about um, adopting their own currencies, um, you know, after having used the you know, Russian ruble for uh, such a long period of time, uh, this is you know in in the early 90s. Obviously, some uh, some countries would later go on to um, adopt the euro. You were intimately involved in in this process. Could you explain to us a little bit of what that was like um, in in giving technical assistance to, to these countries um, that were um, you know, becoming market economies um, in in this. Um, in, in Eastern Europe after uh, the collapse of the Iron Curtain? And, and what is it that uh, uh, an IMF um, a technical advisor to a central bank does in, in, in these sorts of scenarios? Maybe every case is a bit different, um, but can you bring a listener into that sort of room or mindset um, for someone who's coming from the IMF to uh, assist in the um, development of either a new currency or a new monetary uh, framework or, or a new central bank? Uh, <clears throat> let me start with the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, and the request of 15 new member countries of the IMF for technical assistance in a variety of areas, but the areas that uh, concerned me were the central banks of these countries. It, it, it was unbelievably exciting, fulfilling, and, and challenging. These people, I mean, part of what made it so uh, exciting was the eagerness of the central bank staff we worked with in each of these countries. And in my case, uh, by that time, by, by 1992, I had risen to leadership positions in, in the fund. So I was leading technical assistance missions initially to Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and then later to Moldova, and then later to all kinds of countries. But those were the, the three primary former Soviet republics, <clears throat> which prior to the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, had been the central banks, so-called, of those countries had been uh, sort of administrative uh, bodies that executed payment orders and uh, took care that the currency was in good shape and issued as needed and transported around. You know, there was no policy involved. They, they were branches that just executed orders that came from Moscow. Their world changed. They wanted to be like the West. They wanted to have a vibrant market economy. They wanted to know what central banks did and needed to do in a market economy. So you, you couldn't have wished for more, more eager and grateful students, if I can call them students, uh, wanting to learn what we had to tell them. So basically everything about the structure of those central banks needed to be rethought, redrawn, uh, because they were taking on brand new functions that they had never had before, both in terms of data collection and analysis, uh, policy development of policy instruments, oversight of, of a financial sector, which uh, would look very different than it had under the Soviet regime, etc. You know, everything about what they were doing was new. Uh, and it was not only uh, new to them, but it was new to us 
to understand the starting point, to understand the system they had had in place and had up to that moment that we would need to understand in order to know how to build from there. So there was an enormous amount of learning on, on all sides uh, and, and, and students who were just, I, I keep calling them students, but you know, they, they, they were eager to learn everything we could possibly share with them. And that's a wonderful environment to work in. It, it really is. I just enjoyed it immensely. That's wonderful. And, and do you have any particular meetings or, or, or dinners that uh, you uh, finally sort of remember looking back to that time? Um, I remember, so I was actually born uh, when the Berlin Wall fell and, and my parents always tell me that there was a very sort of happy time um, in sort of world affairs, which you know seems to be um, you know rare that we have those sorts of moments. But I'm curious, were, were there any particular meetings that um, uh, that, that you think um, back to in that, um, that era of uh, uh, sort of post-USSR uh, sort of monetary reconstruction in, uh, in Eastern Europe? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, first of all, for these newly independent countries and newly independent central banks and banking systems, one of the top of the list questions was whether they should introduce their own currency or to continue using the Soviet ruble, which then became the Russian ruble issued by the Central Bank of Russia. And of course, in that first, first year, uh, there was no choice but to continue using the, the Russian ruble. Uh, we had a meeting in Tashkent in May of 2092 with all of the uh, governors of the newly independent central banks of the former Soviet Union in order to, to discuss this issue. Should they introduce their own currencies, which they would then need the capacity to manage and, and to set up the systems by which they would manage and control, etc. And there are a number of, of quite different options for approaching these, th these things. Or should they continue using the Russian ruble as they were at that moment? Uh, and in the event that they chose to continue using the Russian ruble, uh, how would they make their individual policies compatible with the broader ruble area of which the ruble would be, be a part? So we outlined uh, what we thought would be required of each central bank, if it was going to continue to, to use the currency issued by, the, by Moscow uh, and discuss those. Uh, and we discussed how countries that wanted to introduce their own currencies should prepare and, and go about doing so. Obviously, these were very preliminary discussions because a central bank, uh, each central bank required a lot of work, a lot of reform, new laws, uh, staff, organized in a different way, trained in a different way to do different things. It was a great deal uh, to be done, especially if they introduced their own, own currency, but even if they continued to use the Russian ruble. Uh, in the end, uh, they all introduced their own currency, uh, which meant they became independent central banks like uh, most other central banks around, around the world. 
but with an awful lot of catch-up uh, in order to be able to properly manage that. Uh, I, I, will, I will tell uh, a quick story in connection with that meeting in Tashkent, uh, which was particularly memorable for me. Uh, in those days, there were, in, in those days, the IMF decided that it was not safe to put us on Russian airplanes. And there were no Western airlines yet serving most, most of these countries and places. So for uh, a while, most of 1992, uh, we chartered private jets to fly us to our various meetings in, in the former Soviet Union. And in the meeting for Tashkent, uh, we flew from Geneva, picked up a colleague in, in Moscow, and then flew on to Tashkent, five of us, uh, from the IMF. Uh, John Adling Shmi, who is the head of the newly created Central European II Department of the IMF, which consisted of the 15 newly independent central banks. Uh, and he was overseeing the meeting with the governors that I referred to before, where we discussed all these, these topics. As it happened, the day we were in the air flying to Tashkent, the 19th of May, was my 50th birthday. So we had a nice little Dom Perignon celebration in the air in this lovely private jet on our way to Tashkent. So I will forever be grateful for uh, crossing the Rubicon into the post-50s uh, in that particular way. What what a uh, what an incredible uh, 50th birthday and uh, and, and also uh, what an amazing time uh, uh, to be um, uh, uh, to be living in in uh, and uh, just seeing um, that um, that transition uh, from these post Soviet states into uh, market economies and, and into uh, this sort of period of, of uh, greater freedom. And, um, and just amazing too to, uh, to be uh, present at uh, these meetings um, with uh, you know, th these uh, countries with this sort of uh, newly gained uh, freedom with uh, uh, you know, deciding to um, you know, move away from uh, the ruble and, and adopt their own currencies. So moving from uh, a happier time to I, I think a, a, slight, uh, a slightly uh, uh, more um, uh, uh, slightly uh, a much sadder, um, and and, um, uh, and, and uh, unfortunate sort of time and, and place. Um, let's shift to uh, the missions that you were part of uh, in Bosnia and Kosovo in, in these sort of conflict post conflict zones. You know, in the uh, in the 90s, you know, we have um, you know the, certainly the you know the conflict that's going on in, in Bosnia between Serbs, Croats, and, and Bosnians. We have the Dayton Agreement, um, which um, Part of this uh, involves shifting from uh, using three currencies in this region um, to one. Um, I'm curious, what, what, what was it like being part of those missions, and you know, what were the uh, key um, uh, features or, or things that you felt were interesting or, or perhaps different from um, you know a post-conflict um, sort of uh, monetary reconstruction um, compared to something like um, the USSR, which uh, fortunately, you know, in, in that case, ended in uh, 
in uh, not in a in conflict, but in a uh, a peaceful um, resolution. What um, what was different here uh, with uh, with Bosnia and Kosovo? It was night and day in a way. Um, I think I was recruited to lead lead these uh, missions to Bosnia and Herzegovina <clears throat> because of the work that I had done in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Moldova of of transition economies that gave me some preparation for the post-conflict environment where a, basically a new central bank needed to be established and built. Uh, it was night and day in the sense that the eager welcoming counterparts in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Moldova uh, were replaced by very unhappy, disagreeable counterparts from the three previously warring sections of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, we spent uh, well over a year uh, trying to agree on the provisions of a new central bank law uh, basically, the, the, the three sections had devolved or sort of collapsed into quasi-central, three quasi-central banks in the three regions. Uh, and the agreement in Dayton that uh, established a new constitution and uh, brought, quote, peace to Bosnia and Herzegovina provided for a new central bank for the entire region with with its own currency and, and so on. So the first task is to agree on what that central bank law will consist of. And it took over a year of uh, quite unpleasant meetings. I, I'll, I'll relay just, just one to give you a bit of the, the flavor of it. Uh, this was in Pali, which was in the Serbian part of Bosnia-Herzegovina, but it's basically a suburb of, of Sarajevo, which is the, the capital of, of the, Bos of the uh, Bosnia uh, Muslim part of the country. Uh, and we tried to hold our meetings in, in the different regions to reflect some balance, although it was far easier doing business in Sarajevo because it was so so central. But in Pali, uh, where, where the, the Serbian government uh, was set up at the time, uh, when we sat down with our counterparts to discuss where we were in addressing the issues we had to resolve in, in the bank law, uh, they put an interpreter at the front of the room and, and uh, we, we had our own, but we really didn't need interpreters because the people we dealt with did speak English, and so basically everything was conducted in English. But they put her there, facing us, uh, so that we could stare at her terribly scarred, war-scarred face. She must have been near a bomb when it exploded or, or something. And that, that, that was just the tone of the meetings. Uh, and the tension. Uh, in, 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 invariably, our meetings would end by somebody bringing in Slivovica. It's a, uh, 
very tasty uh, uh, liqueur from, from that region as a way of cooling everybody down, you know, saying, okay, all right, you know, put down your weapons, have a sip, and leave, leave in a semi-friendly thing. So for a whole year, it was not pleasant, not pleasant. Uh, at the, well, I, I, I should give you a little bit more context. What were we struggling over in trying to arrive at an agreement with the law? I'm a big supporter of currency board rules, which removes any monetary policy of a central bank over the supply of money. It gives complete control over the supply of money to the market. Whenever, whenever anybody wants more currency, they buy it at the fixed price. This is the way the gold standard was supposed to work in the old days. Um, and if they found that they had more than they really needed or cared, they would sell it back. They would, they would redeem. So this kind of arbitrage between market prices for the anchor of the currency and the currency itself, any divergence between the market price and the official price would give rise to an arbitrage opportunity either to buy more or, or redeem. In that way, the market fully regulated what the supply of money was. So it's, it's a, I, I think it's the system that most central banks, most countries ought to look seriously at. Um, but in the context of Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, at, that, at that time, by the way, only Estonia, I think, had adopted currency boards in the post-conflict, uh, in, in the post-Soviet uh, period. Uh, which served them extremely well. I mean, they, they really, they, the economy boomed, it, it worked really well until they adopted the euro, which was almost like a currency board for, for them. Uh, but the idea was still controversial, not broadly accepted. Um, but the Bosnians, Serbs and Croats never, never blinked, never objected for a second to the idea that monetary policy, quote unquote, would be driven by currency board rules. Currency board rules means you have a fixed price to something. In this case, it was to the euro. Uh, at the time, it was actually the German mark because the euro didn't exist yet. Um, and, and you let people buy and sell as they wanted at that fixed price. That's it. Nobody argued about that. And the simple explanation was because they didn't trust each other. They wouldn't have trusted any other power that was given to the central bank to exercise control over the money supply. They're absolutely happy to have no control over the money supply and leave it to the market. So it was not debated at all. It was just absolutely taken for granted that we, we couldn't accept anything else. What they argued over was what to call the currency what alphabet to use, whose picture to put on the picture, uh, how the reserves of the central bank would be allocated between the three different branches and the different parts of the, of the country and how the ownership, you know, it, it was all nationalist stuff that was left over from the Civil War that we argued about. Uh, I, I mean, getting a name for the currency was absolutely fantastic, I mean, you know, frustrating because 
there were some decent sort of neutral names that should have, you know, been, been acceptable, but because they weren't quite ready to agree to anything, they were all rejected. Uh, and at the end of the day, when they finally reached the point where, where there was a green light from the political leadership, okay, get this over with, you know, move, move forward, so pick a name, uh, the, the, the name they picked was horrible. You know, Convertible Marco is the name, the name of the But, you know, it's sort of neutral. It described what was done. So, so you know, uh, you know, that's how we got there, just because all the good names were eliminated back when nobody could agree to anything. So anyway, uh, it, uh, the, the, the time there was challenging and difficult. Wow, that, that's amazing. And, and amazing, too, um, how... Um, uh, different it seems like the um, the issue there really seemed to have much less to do about debating uh, certain monetary dynamics or, or how a monetary system would work, but really just over what you would actually call that um, that new currency. Um, really amazing. Um, I want to uh, shift uh, now to um, you know about uh, ten years uh, in the future um, to uh, your work in various missions to um, Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, you uh, spent uh, quite a bit of time uh, in, in both these places, um, partially under um, uh, your, um, at the end of your uh, tenure at the IMF before you retired, uh, and, and a bit afterward too, uh, when you're um, working uh, at the Treasury Department under um, John Taylor, who was the Undersecretary for International Affairs at the time. Um, I feel like this is very, uh, a very timely uh, discussion in, in the sense that um, uh, you know, just last summer, uh, in the summer of 2021, uh, we saw uh, you know, the Taliban um, you know, regain control of, of Afghanistan, um, you know, which is certainly very uh, you know, controversial uh, in the news. Um, but also you know, part of this was um, we also saw um, uh, the, the world frees the, cent uh, the Afghan central bank assets, um, and uh, and now there's a, a, some debate about whether these assets should still be frozen, um, and, and to what degree um, sanctions should still be in place in Afghanistan. But I'm curious, you know, winding back the clock 20 years, um, you know, after uh, the U.S. Um, in, invaded Iraq in, in Afghanistan and um, and went in and. Uh, you know, removed um, at the Taliban government at the time. Uh, I'm curious, um, as well as um, the Saddam uh, uh, Hussein regime at the time, I'm curious, you know, going in there um, after, uh, you know, uh, these regimes had been um, removed, what was it like setting up a currency board um, and, and establishing central banks in, in these um, countries in the Middle East um, what was that like? What was inherited prior to that time? Um, I'm, I'm curious. I'm sure there's a lot of our listeners would be interested to know. I think a lot of us know sort of the, uh, you know, the foreign policy and, and the, the combat um, sort of uh, sides to, you know, what, what happened over, uh, you know, uh, over the past 20 years. But I think a lot fewer people are aware of sort of what was going on uh, in terms of, um, you know, establishing a government, establishing um, a, a monetary uh, a monetary system and uh, and, and central banks um, in in these places at that time. And I'm curious what your involvement was as well as part of these missions. Uh, for for both Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, 
they were largely after I had retired from the IMF. So I was there as a contractor, a part of the team rather than the mission chief leading the team. Uh, let me contrast Afghanistan with uh, Iraq to some extent. First of all, unlike the experience in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and I, I met uh, some uh, very nice people in Bosnia and Herzegovina. I don't want to give the impression that I, I didn't, uh, but that doesn't describe all of them by any means. But in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, I really enjoyed working with the people in their central banks. Uh, they were wonderful people, uh, again, uh, eager to learn. Uh, Afghanistan's central bank was particularly primitive, if I could put it that way, in terms of uh, the analysis and, and the, the policy tools uh, and, and the, the, the uh, financial sector itself was quite primitive, very reliant on uh, money changers uh, with cash transactions for almost everything. The banking sector was really quite small, uh, which to some extent was a good thing because there were some major corruption scandals with, with the banking sector. Uh, but I, what, I, what I want to say about my experience in both of them is that in Afghanistan it was almost a, well, a 15 year period that I was actually uh, going for a couple of weeks at a time, two or three times a year. Uh, so it was a, a long and uh, extensive engagement uh, with them and uh, it, it was quite rewarding to watch them grow uh, and mature and deepen their knowledge and understanding. Uh, 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 one particular thing that I, that I, I want to share is that uh, traditionally in Afghanistan, as in so many places, the staffing of the central bank was a patronage spoil for many people. So there were maybe half the staff that was totally worthless. Uh, I mean, they didn't have the skills needed for the job they were supposed to do. Uh, and they were there because a parliamentarian had a cousin or a friend or something that uh, needed to be rewarded with, with a job. The USAID, well, by the way, I mean, we, we worked closely and fruitfully in Afghanistan with the World Bank, uh, USAID teams, the US Treasury, uh, and those relationships are not always automatically uh, good or, or enjoyable, but in Afghanistan they were. It takes a little bit of effort on everybody's part, but it, but it was really working very well. And so over these years it was quite nice to watch the progress that was uh, being made. But the merit-based human resource system that was worked up and spelled out extensively by the USAID team uh, for 
who should be hired, when they should be promoted, and things of that sort. You know, what we call typical merit-based uh, HR policies that you, you get a job if you qualify for it, you're promoted if you did a good job, and you're, you're qualified, etc. None of that existed. Uh, and they spelled it, it all out, but it wasn't being implemented. And the, uh, the central bank governor, Abdul Fitrat, who was with us when we went for the very first time in with a small little team in January 2002, uh, and in the meantime had come back again as governor for another go. There had been some others in, in between. Uh, he came in, looked at this and said, you know, the previous governor kept saying, oh, this is really good, but the time's not quite right yet, you know, to implement this thing. Uh, Abdul Fitrat said, now's the time, we're doing it. And he uh, offered a decent, decent to generous severance package for over a thousand employees to leave. Uh, and they did, and the the tone and quality of of the staff elevated noticeably. You didn't have all these people sleeping on a table or playing cards, you know, because they had nothing else they were capable of doing. They were all, you know, it's it, it's it's bad enough to have ghost employees, but but useless employees who are actually there and doing nothing are a bigger drag on morale than a, somebody who's not there at all and just draws a salary. So anyway, big jump forward. Uh, move forward a couple of years, another governor comes in who's not quite as strong as, as Fitrat and gives in a little bit more often to pressure from parliamentarians to hire someone who's not really quite qualified, etc. I was absolutely thrilled at how angry the staff was at this departure from merit-based human resource policy. Why? Because they couldn't compete with the cousins of the parliamentarians. They could compete by doing a better job. And they liked a system that rewarded people who were competent and did a better job. This was quite wonderful to, to watch. So over, over, over the 15 years I, I was actively involved there, it was slow, steady, with these spurts, uh, but quite rewarding, quite rewarding. Um, what is appalling is how bad the United States is as an imperial power, which is not really uh, in our DNA, uh, and we should get rid of it, and we should stop sending our armies all over the place and conquering places and trying to rule them, because we're extremely bad at it. And Iraq was a worse example, which, which I can get into. I mean, it was an appalling example of total American incompetence. How was it that for 20 years, the US military trained Afghan soldiers who are some of the best, most ferocious fighters in the world, but never thought it was important or necessary to uh, 
give them the training to be self-sufficient, i.e. to repair the equipment that they were given. You know, they were always totally dependent on the U.S. Army to support them uh, or contractors to repair their machinery and all. That's idiocy. I mean, the United States is just bad at doing that and they should stop doing it. Uh, so when we saw the horrendous uh, withdrawal, I, you know, I, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm going on a bit, I apologize, but uh, it has been extremely painful seeing my Afghan friends frantically hiding, frantically trying to leave. Uh, I worked with people who did not generally work directly with the U.S. government or Treasury. They worked for an international organization, the International Monetary Fund. Uh, and the U.S. has not even been able to honor its commitment to those who work directly for it to get them out. They've gotten a lot out, but there are a lot that haven't gotten out. But for my friends who did not work directly for the U.S. government, they're not even on the list. You know, this is really painful, really painful. Well, it's amazing uh, just to hear um, the, you know, the whole you know story of the past 20 years in Afghanistan has been you know, certainly uh, an, an extremely uh, uh, interesting one and uh, you know at times uh, you know very um, very tragic and, and unfortunate um, John, I, John you 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 ask another question I didn't get to which was the foreign exchange reserves of, of this yeah so I, I, just, I yeah I, I want to okay. um, close on this because you know on so you um, one other position that you held um, at the IMF on top of um, the technical assistance uh, uh, work that you did with various foreign central banks, you were also chief of the SCR uh, division. And I'm curious, you know, uh, special, you know, the SCR saying for special drawing rights in, in many ways, you know, it's composed of uh, a number of, uh, of currencies um, that make up um, various shares. I'm curious, um, one, what your uh, thinking is, one, um, what was your time like there? And, and I'm curious what you think um, the future of the SDR um, is and in, in, in part, you know, what the future of the dollar's role as a reserve currency in the world. I know that the yuan was you know, added about 10 years ago to the SDR basket. Um, certainly right now, uh, you know, today, um, in, in, you know, there's a fair amount of debate uh, around, you know, what the dollar's role uh, will be or, or uh, how it will be affected by the ongoing um, conflict in Ukraine um, since uh, Russia, uh, since the, the invasion uh, by Russia, uh, Russian forces earlier uh, this year in 2022. I'm curious, um, uh, one, what do you think about the future of the dollar sort of in the long run? And, and also, um, do you think that uh, this uh, recent uh, conflict in Ukraine will create a, a bifurcated um, uh, world uh, reserve system, uh, and um, and I, I think there's some evidence that even you know, prior to uh, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that um, the dollar uh, has been slipping as a, a fraction of um, uh, as its fraction of uh, of all world reserves. Um, I'm curious, uh, and, and of course, you know, it's not just the one that's been gaining. 
um, you know, th there's been gains on smaller currencies um, like um, the Canadian dollar, New Zealand dollar um, th that have been added to um, uh, some of these central bank reserve baskets. I know the Bank of Israel a few months ago has been pivoting a bit away from the dollar um, to, to other currencies like the, like some of the ones I've just mentioned. But I'm curious what your take is on, on all of this. And we're, we're thinking about the international monetary system. When looking at cross-border payments, the international monetary system, both uh, the pricing of things that sell internationally, oil always comes to mind, you know, as a typical example. Uh, the market needs and moves toward a single currency in which to price these, these uh, commodities that trade globally. Similarly, there are real tangible economies in uh, dealing with what's called a vehicle currency, an intermediate currency between some small little unimportant currency that you're paying and some other not so important recipient who is receiving it uh, for every transactor, for every international trader to have to keep a pot of hundreds of different currencies for all these cross-border purposes, there are really strong economic uh, drivers toward a single so-called vehicle currency. So invariably, in the case I just described, the little country paying for something would first buy dollars and pay dollars, and the recipient would then exchange the dollar for their own currency. The, the, the example uh, that I like to use is of the airline industry, where uh, airlines serve you know, thousands and thousands of, of different airports, but they don't run bilateral flights in and out of every single little one. They have hubs. You know, they fly into Chicago and to Dulles or you know, LAX, uh, and you change planes there and you fly off to the next one. So the, the hub and spoke economizes enormously, even though it seems sort of awkward or you know, unnecessary, but it really is a great economy. And it's the same thing for vehicle currency in cross-border payments. The dollar enjoys some real benefits for playing that role, which is why it has played that role. That is, its purchasing power historically has been reasonably stable, uh, sometimes more so than, than others, but on average it's been a very stable currency. Uh, it has deep and liquid financial markets denominated, you know, financial instruments in that currency, which means managing your pot of holdings of dollar assets is easy. You know, there are a lot of things to choose from. You can sell them as you need them, except So the dollar has real economic uh, benefits, which is why it's come into that role. Uh, I think there are several reasons why the SDR would potentially play a better job. 
the the easy non-political one is that being a portfolio, the value of an SDR uh, is the value of a basket of five currencies at the moment and for the last five, 10 years. Uh, every five years they make, they review it and make adjustments as necessary uh, to meet certain standards and criteria. But being a basket of five currencies, if you price oil, for example, in an SDR, rather than the dollar, and oil is priced in dollars almost universally, uh, it would be a bit more stable than just the dollar itself. Because sometimes the dollar goes up and down, and et cetera, and then you've got a little portfolio. So it, 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 ha it has a modest advantage in providing a more stable unit of account, given the way it's currently constructed as a basket of five currencies. And it's the market value of, of those five currencies that tells you what the value of an SDR is in terms of any currency, but it's always quoted in terms of the dollar. SDR is X dollars. Um, but then there's the political aspect, which is in our face today, where the U.S. Uh, has restricted the use of the dollar or sanctioned the use of the dollar uh, with Iran, for example, and, and now Russia. Uh, and to the extent that these restrictive measures are broadly shared by a large number of countries, then nobody except the sanctioned country uh, minds that much because they're all in agreement with the political objective of restricting the use of their currency. And so the great power of the dollar as the, a dominant invoicing unit and a dominant payment unit uh, serves a political, a good political function. Unfortunately, the United States too often imposes its own political objectives and, and purposes that are not so widely shared by everyone. Uh, and, and therefore, these restrictions uh, cause other countries to start looking for alternatives. And I don't need to name names or, you know, go into specific examples. There are unfortunately too, too many of them. But uh, th th this, is, this has been an issue of growing concern. I think those of us who are appalled by Russia's attack on, on Ukraine, uh, you know, didn't mind seeing Russia sanctioned uh, in, in a variety of ways. But, but nonetheless, <clears throat> it is driving China, uh, Russia, and a number of other countries to seek more actively than they had in the past alternatives to the dollar for cross-border cross payments. The SDR has a great advantage here. There, there are things that I would change about how the SDR is, is structured. I would, I would turn it into a currency board uh, rather than the allocation mechanism that's currently in place, and I won't bother to go into those, those details. But uh, even as it is now, but especially if, if it's restructured 
uh, along currency board rules that people could buy whatever amount they, they want at the, the fixed, fixed price, uh, has political advantages because its rules and uses are the result of an international decision of its 102 or however many members there are uh, of the IMF, rather than just the decision of the United States deciding you know, how the dollar is going to be used. So the, 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 the abuse of the SDR as a payments instrument for political gain, the potential for abuse is dramatically reduced when it's a collective global decision rather than the decision of a single country. So that's another reason that I think uh, the SDR should be uh, given more serious consideration. But at the moment, uh, end with this, that uh, the SDR does not have the advantages I described for the dollar earlier of a deep and liquid uh, market in financial instruments denominated in dollars. There are very, very few SDR bonds out there, very, very few uh, goods invoiced in, in SDRs. The International Telecommunications Union, all the satellite stuff and so on, that's all in SDRs. Uh, but those uses are very limited. Therefore, it doesn't have, at this point, the underlying infrastructure that would make it attractive as an alternative. But I think more ought to be done to develop that private use of SDRs, private market use of SDRs, uh, so that it does have those, those features. Well, that's fascinating, and uh, you know, it's so interesting you know, to hear about um, just the, all the debate and, uh, and, and data around um, you know, how the dollar, uh, the U.S. dollar acts as um, you know, a major invoicing currency, um, and, and uh, you know, a lot of uh, uh, interesting uh, questions about um, yeah, how, um, how long the uh, dollar dominance um, will persist, or if it'll be um, uh, in, in any way um, threatened in the near future. Well, Warren, this has been such a, a wonderful treat um, to have you on. Uh, it's been amazing to hear about your entire story um, from going from uh, physicist to economist, um, being uh, inspired by uh, a talk by Milton Friedman at, uh, at Berkeley, um, becoming a Milton Friedman uh, student um, at the University of Chicago in its um, uh, you know, Howard uh, Economics PhD program, um, in, in going from there, um, you know, becoming a, a monetary economist and, and central bank advisor, spending an incredible uh, three-decade career um, at the IMF, working in, in unbelievable places, um, you know, post-USSR states, Bosnia, Kosovo, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Uh, it, it's uh, an amazing uh, experience just getting to uh, listen uh, and hear uh, your stories from um, doing uh, technical assistance missions uh, for central banks um, around the world. Thanks so much, uh, Warren, for, uh, for, for joining us. Um, uh, this has been uh, uh, another uh, episode of Capitalism and Freedom. Our guest has been uh, Dr. Warren Coates. I'm John Hartley, your host. Thanks so much for joining us.